Good morning. Hopefully, hopefully we don't have a reoccurrence over the next few weeks. Remember when I slipped a few months ago? I was putting the hay out here, and I was already slipping around, so I got to kind of try and stay away from that or I'm going to fall, but hopefully not. So uh, thank you once again for braving the weather and joining us today, and I'm just praying that through this Christmas season, as it's ramping up, that it's not already becoming too overwhelming for you. I know that Thanksgiving and Black Friday and shopping and every single weekend, it feels like there's one more thing and balancing all of the family expectations. And so I just pray that it doesn't become too overwhelming. I'll be praying that for the church. I am so excited to be here preaching on this passage. When we looked at Acts and we dropped all of our who's preaching where in there, and I saw that I had at least half of the Saul conversion story. I was just elated. I just told Matt, I said, this is perfect. We have to work towards this. And, and so I've been looking forward to it since the beginning. So today we'll be in Acts 19, verses 31. Acts, Acts 9, verses 19 through 31. I'm excited to be preaching on this passage because the Apostle Paul and this topic of the unlikely ones is just so close to home for me. I will try to refrain from just telling too much of my story through this as, as I've shared it in a sermon before and we've got a video online of it. And so I'm going to try not to share too much of it, but I also know that there are some of you here that are newer. We have new people every week. And so if that is you, if you are newer to the church and you have not heard my story, the, the short version is instead of a blinding light on the Damascus Road, I had a radio evangelist on the Nebraska Road. So I am always willing to tell my story and to anyone who's wanting to hear it. And so again, if, if that's you and you haven't heard my whole story, I, I look it up online or send me an email, send me a text, and I'd love to go out to lunch and swap stories with you. Because um, if I'm going to tell you my whole life story, you're going to tell me some of yours too. That's kind of my rule. But my main point today is that we all need evangelists and disciplers in our lives. And we can see that in Paul's conversion experience. Last week, Matt talked about the evangelistic aspect of Paul's story. Ananias was willing to go to this unlikely person of Saul and preach the gospel and radically change his life. Last week, we saw the emotional, experiential side of Paul's story. And today, we will see the the, the discipleship side of his story, the, the head knowledge, the logic end of his story. Both are absolutely necessary for us if we want to grow and thrive in Jesus. So follow along as I read our passage, 12 verses today. So starting at verse 19, you'll actually see, depending on what translation you're reading out of, 19 is broken in half by a paragraph. I can't explain to you why they did it that way. The verses and the chapters are not inspired. The paragraph breaks are not inspired. So I can't explain to you why 19 is broken in half, 
But for our preaching purposes, we decided that we were going to go with it and split it right in half. So I'll be jumping in right in the middle of verse 19. It says, For some days he, he being Paul, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So following that, Matt said, you know, we had this two-part mini sub-series within our being a witness. And so following the same theme as last week, we're going to continue looking at three more unlikely aspects of Paul's conversion. In verses 19 through 22, we can see the new unlikely witness. Because remember last week, Matt ended with the unlikely witness. The unlikely witness of Ananias who went and preached when everyone else was scared. So this week, we have the new unlikely witness. Then in verses 23 and 26, we see the unlikely response of the church. And in 27 through 31, we can see the unlikely discipler. So first off, 19 through 22, we see the new unlikely witness. That unlikely witness is Saul. Or now he is referred to as, or will be soon referred to as Paul. And so throughout this sermon, I'm going to bounce back and forth. Saul, Paul, which really brings up a good point or a good question. As, as Matt was preaching last week, I was sitting here and I'm like, what? why does God always change people's names? What is the purpose of this? Is their first name not good enough? Why would he change their names? And so I kind of dug into that a little bit this week. And what I found was that God changes a person's name usually to establish a new identity in their life. God doesn't change everyone's name that he encounters. Out of the 12 apostles, he actually only changed one of their names, Simon into Peter. So why does God choose to rename some people and not others? Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us any clear reasons like, 
He changed his name because of X, Y, and Z. It doesn't actually say that, but perhaps, probably, is to let them know that they're destined for a new mission in life. All the people that he gives new name for drastically change the trajectory of their lives, and they have a new mission in life. The new name was a way to reveal the divine plan and to assure them that God's plan would be fulfilled through them. With Paul, it's actually a little different. It doesn't, it's not that God changes Paul's name. He just chooses which name he wants Paul to go by. See, Paul actually had both names. He, he went by Saul and Paul. Saul was his Jewish name because we, we know from last week that Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. So his nationality and his religion was Jewish Pharisee being the the occupation that he was in. He was a religious leader, but yet he also had, or that was Saul. Yeah, that's what I said, right? Saul was that. On the other hand, we have Paul, and the name Paul is his Roman name. Well, why would he have two names? Well, because at that time, most of the known world was controlled by Rome, and some of the specific areas, Rome would give citizenship to the people in that town. And Paul happened to be from an area that got that. So Paul was his Roman name, and Saul was his Jewish name. Now, it makes sense, though, that Paul would start going by his Roman name, and that God would desire that to be his new name, as he will be the missionary to the entire Roman world and beyond. So he wants people to know that this is a Roman person coming into their midst. I say that Paul is the new unlikely witness because of who he was before meeting Jesus. The beginning of this chapter, Saul is said to be ravaging the church. Two chapters earlier, this is the same guy who held the religious leaders' coats while they stoned Stephen. Now this isn't just like a Uh, an act of service, like, here, boy, hold my jacket while I go do this job. No, it it is an act of approval. He is protecting the coats so these men could carry out the punishment and the stoning. But yet here in verse 20, we see that he immediately starts preaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogues of all places, to which the people in the synagogues had to have been like, what?! Who is this guy? Is this even the same guy that was just in here? Yes. Saul the persecutor has become Paul the preacher. When we encounter the risen Lord, it should radically change who we are, the way we act, the way we talk, the things we believe. Last week, we were supposed to write down the name of that unlikely person in our life, right? Write down that that unlikely person. I'm not going to have you do that with this idea, but I know for some of you, you can visually see someone in your life like this right now, right? Somebody who you haven't seen in a while, maybe a friend from high school or before, and you run into them, or you get that Facebook request and you start trolling through to try and figure out who they are and, and what's going on in their life now. And all of a sudden you see like they're sharing like Facebook or like church posts and stuff like that. Or even just talking to them. You're like, oh yeah, I'm a member of a church now. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Maybe they're like, oh, I'm a pastor now. And you're like, what? 
you, I knew you, you're, you're doing this stuff. Maybe some of you are that person and that, that has been people's response to you. That was me. In fact, a man from this church who knew me from high school actually said that when he found out that I was the youth pastor at the E-Free Church, the church who, that he went to in high school, when he found out that I was the pastor there, he immediately was confused and denied it. It's got to be a different Joey Weber. There's no way it's the same one I knew. And then it was just followed by absolute surprise. To him, it just didn't make sense based on what he knew about me from before. Not only does an encounter with Jesus result in radical change, but sometimes it can happen really quickly. I imagine the people in the synagogues were like, dude, four days ago you were in here asking for a list of the Jewish or of the Christians so that you could go capture them, bring them in to be murdered. That was four days ago. Now you're in here and you're one of them and you're preaching the gospel. How does that even happen? These verses remind us that no one is too far lost from Jesus. And that when Jesus moves in people's lives, he can quickly make a disciple maker out of a disciple murderer. I know earlier in Acts, I talked about the topic of repentance, but this is the picture of it. Repentance is this drastic change in our life. We cannot continue pursuing the the things that we once did. If we have truly accepted the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers us and we are striving to make him the Lord of our lives, we must look different than we did before. It's interesting, too, what Paul is preaching. Verse 20, it says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the most important thing for us to understand. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he is actually God. It is the most important thing for us to understand that he is that before we understand what he did for us. Now they have to come pretty quickly together, but we must understand that Jesus is God. We point to the cross and we talk about the fact that Jesus died for our sins. We talk about forgiveness and grace. But if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is just a good person, our sins are not forgiven. That is why Paul starts right there. That is why that is his first point. Who is Jesus Christ to you? What you do with that question is the most important thing. It is a question that determines life, death, and eternity. Who is Jesus to you? Next, as we continue through, in verses 23 through 26, we can see the unlikely response of the church. But before we look at the the response of the church, we can see the response of the Jewish leaders in those first couple of verses, which is not unlikely at all. It's exactly what we would expect from the Jewish leaders by this point. They're enraged and they want to kill Paul. 
one of their friends, one of their coworkers, they want him dead now because they know what this means. This isn't just some fanatical, smelly fisherman saying these crazy things about Jesus. This is one of the well-educated Jewish elites. This is why God chose Saul. This is what God meant when he said that he had chosen him to go to rulers and kings. Paul will have the ability to reach people that no other disciple would ever have had they would have ever dreamed of, including the ruler of the Roman government. By the end of this book and further on, we're going to see that Paul will have the ability to walk in to the Caesar of the Roman government and preach the gospel. But this is where Paul's own persecution starts, which actually gives us a a little sub point here. We've been talking about the idea, the topic of witnessing for 10 weeks now. And guess what? We're going to keep talking about it for another four months because it is that important for us to truly understand this idea of witnessing and how to witness and and where to witness and what we are to witness. But with that call for you all to witness, you need to know that struggles may come. In fact, for some of you, struggles may already be coming. And looking at the verse in passage, or in the, yeah, the verse, looking at verse 25, we can see that we really have two options, right? The, the leaders are angry about what Paul is saying, and they want to kill him. And so Paul has to leave the city in fear for his life, has to be snuck out of a window at nighttime in a basket. How, how demasculating would that have been? This religious leader, this religious elite who used to walk in and out of synagogues and get so much honor. And now he's stuffed in a basket and sent out a window. We have two choices in the topic of witnessing. We either shut up about Jesus or we accept our basket. We can choose to not follow Jesus' command to be a witness and to proclaim his name to everyone who will witness. We can choose to shut up about Jesus or we can realize that what we are saying will offend people. Maybe family. It may push friends away from us. It will mean a drastic change in our life. We accept our basket. Those are your choices. In verse 26, we see that unlikely response of the church. Fear, distrust, shock. They cannot believe that this guy can be changed. They don't even want him around them. This This is the Christian church. In verse 26, this is James and John. These are the leaders. These are the guys that have been our heroes so far, and they won't let Paul in. There's always someone who is too unlikely. I read a story one time, and I actually went back and reread a little bit of it this past week, and maybe some of you have heard about it or read it yourself. Does everyone remember the man Jeffrey Dahmer? 
Without going into gory details, he was definitely one of the most unlikely. Lightly stated, Jeffrey Dahmer was a monster, right? To say he was a serial killer is an understatement. He was caught for the crimes he committed, arrested, and sentenced to death, or sentenced, sentenced to life in prison, and he eventually was murdered in prison. Which, besides being murdered, just dying in prison, I believe that all of that is absolutely justified. Sentence, life in prison, and dying in prison, I believe that is absolutely justified for his crimes. But the story I want to share was that Jeffrey Dahmer actually accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior in prison. Now I say that, and I know that it automatically can cause some of us to wrestle in our seat a little bit. Somebody like him, right? If you truly know what he had done, it's like, I don't, I don't know. That just makes me feel weird. It did me when I first heard it. And actually, Monday morning, our elder meeting, it kind of caused some of us to be like, ooh, I, I don't know. That's, yeah, that, it's just shocking. That name can just shock us. The fact that someone like him could be saved is unsettling for some of us. And we can sit here all day long and ask questions and speculate. Was it real? Did he really understand? Or was he just trying to get attention? You know, was this just another game he was trying to play? We can speculate that all day long, but we as humans do not know the heart and we are not the final judge. He made a proclamation and that's all I know for sure. But the question that we really have to ask is can someone like Jeffrey Dahmer be saved? Can they? Is there anyone in this world who is too unlikely? For the men in Acts 9, Saul was that person who was too unlikely. He was literally their Jeffrey Dahmer or their Adolf Hitler or their Osama bin Laden, whoever it is, you just think like, oh man, that person is so horrible. That person could never, and I'm not saying any of the other ones could have got saved either. I'm just saying to the men in this passage, to the church in Acts 9, Saul was that person. He was the murderer of their church. You were probably sitting here like me last week thinking about people to write down. Like, who is that person that's just too unlikely? And if you're anything like me, my mind just shot way out there and had this crazy idea. And I thought about it for a second. I go, no, that's, that's too out there. I'll probably never even talk to that person anyway. So let's bring that back a little bit. Let's not be totally crazy. That, that person's just a little too unlikely. Let's take it a step back. I was looking at Andrea's list as she was writing it down. And do you know who was at the top of her list? I say the top of her list because even though Matt asked us to write down one name, Andrea writes down seven because that's just Andrea being Andrea. Do you know who's at the top of her list? Me. And then she puts a check mark next to the name. And she wrote it in her Bible right next to this passage. 
See, at one, person, at one point in her life, I was that person who was too unlikely. And now here we are. And she writes that list and she puts me at the top of it with the check mark next to it because we all know that that unlikely person, now we're going to go to Christmas with after we've been hearing about it for the past three weeks. Yeah, unlikely, unlikely. Yeah, I'm going to reach Uncle Jimmy. Yeah, and then you go to Christmas and it's like, nope, not Uncle Jimmy. No way. She wrote that list and put me at the top of it to remind herself when she reads this passage or just when she goes back to look at it that the unlikely are reachable. (laughs) Some people may say that they don't want to be in a heaven that includes someone that bad, right? That's like our response when we hear about these horrible people that get saved. I don't want to be in a heaven that includes someone that bad. If that is your response when you hear about somebody horrible accepting Jesus, you do not truly understand the concept of heaven salvation and redemption that person that you're hearing who's a monster that got saved that's not who they're going to be in heaven and i speak for all of our leaders when i say we would love to help you understand the concept of heaven salvation and redemption now i say this is the unlikely response to the church because we expect that a church is going to be open-armed and welcoming in. Praise God. Come on in, Paul. Yeah, that's great. We know what you were doing. Yeah, the, one of those people you took off to prison and had killed was my aunt, but come on in. It's okay. It's not totally unlikely, though, when you actually think about what's going on. We have to remember that with the stoning of Stephen, persecution broke out across all of Jerusalem against the church, and this guy Saul was the main protagonist. It's okay for churches to be cautious sometimes. We need to protect the flock, and that is what these disciples were doing right here. They were attempting to protect the flock. Forgiveness does not equate forgetfulness. We can love people and forgive them, and they can definitely be forgiven for the sins that they have committed but that doesn't mean we automatically forget everything from their past. We want to protect the flock that God has entrusted to us, not just those here, but those coming in too. We want to protect everyone. Again, I can see this in my own life. Shortly after I got saved, I felt God calling me into youth ministry, but at the time I worked second shift, and so it just wasn't possible. That's, that's, when, you, that's when youth group is, is during second shift. But God being amazing, he orchestrated some awesome stuff and, and just made it possible for me to switch shifts without even losing pay. For those of you who know, you get more pay for working odd hours. Um, but I'd also just seen my wife go through the process of becoming a youth leader, and I was actually worried that some of my past sins could keep me from serving in that way. So I went to the pastor, and I told him my situation. And I'm going to jump ahead of myself a little bit in this sermon, but I'm actually just kind of setting up the next point. That man was totally a Barnabas to me. He said, I've heard your testimony, your story, I've, I've witnessed your life over the past six months. I know you are a changed man, and guess what? I'm the final say on who gets to serve in youth ministry or not. 
That man stood up for me and helped me to take the next steps in my walk with Jesus. But he also did it. He didn't just say, okay, you want to serve? Go ahead, see ya. Have fun, go. He did it while walking alongside me, discipling me, mentoring me, helping me, guiding me, loving me. Which brings us to our final point. Verses 27 through 31, we see the unlikely discipler. The unlikely discipler is Barnabas. Not because of who Barnabas was. Not, he wasn't that unlikely, but just because of the situation surrounding it. When no one would stand up and approve of Paul, when no one would accept Paul, when no one would go to him, even though they'd heard these incredible stories, when no one would do it, Barnabas did. Who is this guy Barnabas? Well, in Acts 4, 34 through 7, we actually see a glimpse of this man Barnabas, and we're going to see a lot of him after this. In Acts 4, 34 through 37, this is right after the church starts, he says, it says, For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person at any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostle called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the same guy. This guy in Acts 4 is the same guy we see in Acts chapter 9. And the Acts chapter 4 passage tells us that his name means son of encouragement, and he's clearly living up to that name here with Paul. When no one else would go, this man did. This is most likely because he knew firsthand how Paul's life had changed. He was someone who knew his story, had witnessed his life, and knew that he was changed. And we can look at this and say, well, well, how would Barnabas even know for sure that Paul wasn't just trying to weasel in, trying to pretend like he was a good person, just to weasel into the church and take advantage of it? It appears in these 12 verses that this is only a few days. But it's, in reality, it's actually several years. And to see that, we have to jump over to Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 through 25. And I'll have that up here for us. The first part of Galatians is, is Paul telling this Acts chapter 9 story of his conversion to the church in Galatia. But right in the middle of verse 16 is where I want to jump in. He says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and back to Damascus. Then after years, I did go up to Jerusalem. After three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. And I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. And so, you got to kind of jump around a little bit to figure out what's going on here. But so after he gets let down in the basket, he goes to Arabia and was there for three years. 
Then he comes back for a few days, and that's this meeting we see in verses 26 and 27. And then he leaves again for another 14 years. And we won't see him, that, those 14 years of the next two chapters, we won't see Paul again for another two chapters. So what is he doing for all these years? 17 years, what is he doing? Why don't we know what's going on? He's being discipled. The passage in Galatians says that he came back with Barnabas. I truly believe that Barnabas was intentionally discipling this man, at least some, during their time in Syria, if not the entire time. This is important for us to realize. It is vitally important for those who have accepted Jesus to get discipled. The word disciple comes to us from a Latin word, discipulus, which translated simply means learner. Barnabas discipled Paul. He helped Paul learn. Well, learn what? Learn about Jesus. Well, how would Paul know, or how would Barnabas know about what to teach him? He just simply taught him all that he had seen and heard from the apostles and what he was currently learning. This is the great commandment. Go, therefore, and make disciples, make learners of Jesus. I've talked about how I got saved while driving down the interstate listening to Greg Laurie, the radio evangelist, and that is a wonderful and important and necessary event. The emotional experience that I had with the risen Lord. Hearing and responding to the gospel. But you know what else is equally as important? The fact that I came home and started getting personally mentored and discipled by Pastor Daniel Grell at the E-Free Church. He helped me to become a learner of Jesus. That is the main point of these past two weeks. We all need Greg Laurie's and Daniel Grell's in our lives. We need those who are preaching the gospel and helping us to experience the emotional side of our faith. That's important, the emotional aspects. But we also need those who are discipling us and helping us to understand the knowledge of our faith. We must have both an emotional experience and knowledge of who he is and what he has done for us. What happens if we don't have discipleship? got a graphic that I found for, this is Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Um, It's a really incredible graphic that I found instead of having to go and read the whole passage to you. And and in it, you know, it talks about that the, the farmer goes out and he sows the seeds, the seed of the gospel, spreading it out. And there are four different responses that we can have. Sometimes the seed is just immediately gobbled up by the crows, and sometimes it starts to grow up, but the sun burns it up. Other times the thorns and the weeds come in and choke out, and other times it bears fruit and grows. And the reality is that seed had been thrown around my life for 28 years before I finally accepted Jesus, and it has been for all of you too. This is an analogy for when people hear the gospel. Sometimes we hear the gospel and it just gets gobbled up right away. Discipleship is what helps take it to this final point. Helps us to grow and to bear fruit, to thrive in Christ. 
We must have discipleship. It's not just an emotional experience because that's what most of these other ones are. We, we go to our conference and we raise our hand or we go on a mission trip and we have mountain high experiences with Jesus. We come home and the world starts to attack us. We've got to have that knowledge. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, theologian, author, and pretty much just all-around awesome guy, um, once talked about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace tends to be some of that other stuff, the other three sows or seeds. Bonhoeffer says that cheap grace is a formalized Christianity by which one becomes a member merely by intellectual assent to certain doctrines without any corresponding change of life. Cheap grace is what happens when we have only head knowledge about Jesus. When we've gone to church our whole life and we know all the right answers to say when the pastors ask us, when we know all the things about Jesus, that's cheap grace. We never really submit our lives to him. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Costly grace is a rejection of mere theological assent and a full-throttle call to self-sacrifice, obedience, and discipleship to follow Christ is to boldly risk all for his sake. That is what Paul did. That is what Barnabas did. That is the call for each and every one of us, to risk it all for the gospel. It doesn't mean we have to be a a, a missionary to a foreign country where we may get imprisoned or worse. But it means we need to be willing to be. And we need to live every day full throttle for Jesus. Being a Barnabas or a Paul and living a life sacrificing it all for Jesus. That is the call of Christianity. We must have the emotional experience, and the discipleship. So in the end, we we said last week to go be an Ananias. That's absolutely right. Use words, preach the gospel. But we also need to be a Barnabas. We need to be both. Who can you go to and help take that next step? Maybe someone who you know got saved, but they just don't seem to be growing. They don't seem to be doing anything. They seem to be stalling out at times. Who is the Paul in your life right now that you can go to and disciple? Maybe you are actually the Paul in this situation. You are the one who got saved, raised your hand at a conference years ago, but you just feel stagnant in your walk. Who can you ask to help you take that next step, to personally mentor, disciple you, to have a more thriving life with Jesus? Pray that we all can have the emotional experience with Jesus and a knowledge of who he is and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. And God, as we go through this Christmas season, help us to continue to have emotional experiences with you along the way but help us to also continue to learn who you are and what you've done for us. This is such a perfect season 
for that. Remembering that you came and you lived a life so that we all could be forgiven. I pray that all that we can, we can take that next step, that we can help someone take that next step to following you. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.